you know, manufacturing, for instance, you know, I spend a lot of time there and, you know, the opportunity to emerge stronger from the crisis and, and figure out what the next normal looks like. And then. Okay. You're um, getting into podcast content. So let's hang on oh, there. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I'm Annette, and thank you for listening to my podcast. Today, I'm excited to have a very timely and important uh, guest on today, uh, Todd McLeese of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who is a strategist, a systems guy, uh, works with uh, industry and higher ed. And thank you for being on my podcast today, Todd. Happy to do it, Annette. It's good to see you. Good to see you again. Uh, let the audience know uh, more about what you do and who you are. Sure. Uh, For the last several years, I've been a strategic advisor to um, companies large and small. I actually started out in the early stage space. I was an angel investor, and um, it felt like it made a lot of sense at the time. And then I, it took me about a year or so, and then I realized that um, startups just don't have a lot of money to spend on strategic advice. So um, I started seeking out large companies and um, crafted some relationships with uh, global 100, uh, one global 100 company, one global 500 company. And then over the last couple of years, I've really started to get deeply involved in the continuum of secondary education into higher ed. I spend most of my time in higher ed, but try to build systems that that we can integrate between secondary education and higher education. And, you know, I'm a regent at Amarillo College, uh, and that's how we met. You were here uh, for our General Assembly presentation to all our faculty and staff in January, and I had the good fortune to sit next to you or at the table with you, and we got to talking a lot, and just your work is fascinating. I saw your presentation. I've got a copy of it uh, here next to me. And I guess one of the questions I will just start with is, how can we future-proof our workforce? Mm. That's one of your slides. And Yeah, that equation's and, changed a lot since I did that presentation. <laughs> yes, you were here the end of January. We're now in middle of, Mar- of May. Yeah. Uh, everything in our worlds have been, has been disrupted from right. COVID-19. Yeah, and as you know, I mean, I I spoke about disruption in January because there were at least nine forces at the time that were impacting future of work and workforce. And at the time, it I would say you know mixed response from the audience. Typically, sort of sixty percent believers, forty percent non-believers in terms of the uh, the rate of change and the disruption caused by the rate of change. But today, nobody questions the disruption that's going on. And really, I look at the same nine and I put a COVID lens on all of that and just think about where and read a lot. That's really what I am. I'm not a futurist. I'm more of a, a, a good reader, I guess. Um, <laughs> the opportunities in front of us are to recognize where acceleration will occur because of the crisis and then where uh, inertia will occur because of the crisis. And so I think having an eye on that uh, is really interesting. I got on a mission a couple of months ago to find, um, really get access to global thought leaders in the topics around emerging from crisis. And so uh, scenario planning was the first one I did. And so I went, 
I mean, I'm just cold calling people on LinkedIn, really. And so I reached out to Rita McGrath at Columbia University, who wrote Scene Around Corners. And we did a live stream a couple of weeks ago, and then uh, yesterday, or two days ago, two days ago, Wednesday, had Heather McGowan, who I'm more of a fan than anything else. And she's really informed my thinking about future of work. And so we did an hour together. I'll send you those links when, um, from YouTube. And then next Tuesday, I've got Ravine, who's another, he wrote the book Reinventing Jobs. He's another great thinker. So I'm reaching out to what I think of as people that would be on Mount Rushmore in their field of study or field of expertise and bringing them to this equation to kind of plug it into the mindset so that we can level set on, you know, it's not just me saying it. There's all these people. <laughs> That have been talking about it a lot more. Yeah. So that sounds great. And I'll put those links in the show notes so folks can access them too. So, the future of work. I was very fascinated by your presentation and I love change and I love trying to plan for the future. But nobody planned for this future. And sure, if we'd gone back five or 10 years and known to plan for this future, we might have done things differently. And some people may say we should have already done that. But here we are. And, mm-hmm. you know, our K-12 systems, our higher ed institutions, our community college, Amarillo College, and everyone across the nation and beyond are certainly scrambling to try to figure out how to provide learning. Yes. But your focus is more on the future of work, correct? Yeah, which is every day it's becoming more and more connected in my mindset, in my thought process to the future of learning. Yeah. Because, you know, I think the future of work is continuous lifelong learning, and we're going to have to be much more adaptive than we've ever been before. And so you said you love change, and that makes you an outlier in society. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. You know, a lot of people like change. They just don't want to change the way everybody wants them to change. It's uh, anybody else, really. <laughs> uh, we all like the kind of change we want to make. I think what I, so I work very closely with 18 schools um, in Wisconsin. And then I was just on the phone with, with Amarillo College yesterday. And the 18 schools are part of a collaboration known as the Higher Education Regional Alliance. And so I work with the chancellors and presidents from those 18 schools, two-year, four-year, private, public it's a true uh, sort of inclusive collaboration. And one of the things that I do for them is provide, act as a liaison to industry. So I interact with the, the employers, the corporate partners, and make sure that the, there's synergy between uh, what higher ed is delivering and what employers need. And of course, not by myself. That's a, that's a huge group effort. The future of learning. So what have we learned in the last 60 days? Well, we learned that digital learning and the ability to teach is actually not as hard as we thought it was. And that doesn't mean we haven't had significant issues and a wide spectrum of outcomes and so forth. But all of the hesitation, all of the barriers that we put in place over the years, they just weren't real because in a very short period of time, we pivoted and we started delivering curriculum online across the board regardless of, you know, is it Amarillo College? Is it the University of Texas? Is it Stanford or Harvard? It doesn't matter, right? It was all digital. And so I think there's some permanent change there. I also see university systems across the country that are in trouble and uh, to your school systems as well. 
And the need to find efficiencies in the infrastructure that we've built over 100 years, uh, the need to leverage digital to make sure that we don't have complete redundancy throughout the entire system on every campus, that we can leverage the best teachers, that we can leverage uh, technology to go faster and maybe long-term make school more affordable. I think there's just these tremendous opportunities that we found in terms of education in the last 60 days. Let's say you're a high school senior. Your year has certainly been disrupted and you had planned to go off to school at a college, at a university somewhere out of state. And maybe your mom says, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to we're going to stay home for another year at least. And what would you encourage those students to think about maybe a little differently even now than a few months ago about how they plan their two to four years in college uh, to six Mm -hmm. years, whatever it takes? Do you have a different recommendation? that you might give them or just some advice. I don't know how much my recommendation has changed. I've always thought, not always. I have three kids. One is 10, believe it or not, uh, just 10. Um, (laughs) And uh, I've got a 24-year-old who's in a Buddhist monastery after high school and college. And I've got a 19-year-old next month, 19, who's going through school right now, through college right now. And my son was a baseball player, the 24-year-old. And so junior college was okay. Here, maybe less so in Texas, certainly less so in California, there's actually a stigma attached to going to a community college for a couple of years. As a baseball player, it's a little bit of a get out of jail free card because maybe you could get a division one scholarship and so forth. But boy, the value of those first 60 credits at a community college is, or even online is incredible, right? And so uh, if you're doing a gap year next year because um, of safety issues or because all the learning is digital or maybe you're looking at alternatives, maybe there's something to be said for figure out where the value is, right? Starbucks right now will pay for your bachelor's degree uh, at Arizona State, delivered 100% online. But what is the point of racking up tens of thousands of dollars in debt rather than building some experiential, doing some experiential learning and building some real world skills next year, rather than focusing on some of those programs that are excellent at online. And maybe many schools will be excellent at online by by the time fall comes around. There's so many unknowns right now because while Cal State University System, the largest public school uh, system in the country has said no classes in the fall semester on campus, not everybody's made those decisions yet, right? And so, you know, I was talking to a family in Arizona the other day, and their daughter attends the University of Michigan, and it's $80,000 a year for her all in. And you just wonder um, if we're going to be sitting home in Scottsdale doing that learning remotely, is that the right way to, to invest that $80,000? So I, I'm a big fan of. Stack credentials. I, I I believe in lifelong learning. I do it myself. I'm in my fifties, and I I'm constantly learning. If if I'm either reading or I'm engaged in an online class through one of the MOOCs, and I'm constantly looking for ways to help employers 
organize work to upskill, reskill, and new skill their teams. And so the time of the value of that four-year degree, uh, that stock of knowledge is minimized now because we don't have scarcity of information. We don't have scarcity of learning opportunities. We actually have the ability to uh, encourage lifelong learning, teach people how to learn, learn to learn, maybe is, is the best use of a gap year next year. So you've thought about these issues, the issue of exponential change, uh, just exponential growth. I, one of your slides talks about how people don't understand exponential yeah. uh, focus, and people are certainly seeing that with the virus. Do you understand That's that if, you, if you're familiar with, with uh, that level of math? But, That's right. but if you're looking at exponential change in our in our how we provide learning, but in our workforce as well. And you're trying to be future-proofed or whatever the right phrase is. How do you assure that you are on top of learning the kinds of things you need to learn as a student, as, as, a, as a worker, as a maybe now unemployed worker? Yeah. What, are, what are the focus so I think areas? the good news about that is the skills haven't changed in the last 60 days. They've actually, uh, the importance of those skills that we talked about uh, in January are more critical today. And I'm talking about the uniquely human skills. The, um, historically, we've referred to them as soft skills, but that's verboten today. Um, it's, uh, it's emotional intelligence. It's empathy and compassion. I believe there, there are four things that are going to happen in the workforce. And these are the things that as an, if we're building organizations or we're building our own career path, these are the things we need to be ready for. The first thing is we need to convince ourselves that now is the time that we commit to continuous lifelong learning because change is happening so quickly. And not just crisis change, not just pandemic change, but technology change. And that technology change is only going to be accelerated in many industries at the moment, right? Not today because cash is short. Uh, resources are finite right now and we're, at, we're working on a different plane at the moment. But very soon you will see significant adoption uh, closer to the rate of Germany and South Korea, for instance, in automation technologies and not robotics, not limited to robotics in the manufacturing shop, but robotic process automation for customer service and accounting and so forth. So continuous lifelong learning is the first thing that we need to commit to. We need to be ready to recognize that every couple of years, skill sets that we've always prided ourselves in having or having developed, skills that we have placed value on or found value in and uh, our employers have found value in, we need to be willing to let go of those while we learn new skills to be ready for that next job. The second thing that's going to happen in the future of work that we should be preparing for is we're really just tapping into human potential right now. What we've learned about just the brain in the last 10 years is more than we've ever learned ever before. And the issues around self-motivation and hyper-productivity, uh, accelerated learning capabilities and so forth, there's so much there that can maximize our ability to learn and to perform. You know, this, this issue of flow state where we feel our best, we perform our best. McKinsey did a study and said, when you're in flow, you're five times more productive than when you're not. 
Harvard did a study and said you're seven times more creative. Okay, so how do we call on, how do we build triggers into the systems that we build to at least not put barriers in the way of people reaching for productivity, reaching for human potential, but rather build these flow triggers into processes so that it's a more natural flow uh, for me to get to that state of hyper-productivity. The third thing that's going to happen in the workforce is collaboration is going to explode in this decade. The lack of resources, the incredible opportunities that are with us right now with technology that's already been invented, just not adopted, really requires that we look at new ways to acquire technology, implement technology, sell technology, and so forth. That entire process hasn't changed since the 60s when we were selling mainframe computers. And so collaboration between organizations and between people, competitive paradigms have shifted. Some of them have been thrown out the window now uh, because of the pandemic. And we're going to find ways to do things in a much more convergent way. And convergence is actually the fourth piece, which is human and machine convergence. So in the next three to five years, they said 2023, I, I think it's, it's right there. I, don't, I didn't think we were going to get there in 2023, but now you're beginning to see these intelligent technologies being leveraged for drive-throughs and customer service phone banks are completely resourced by using an AI. And as these technologies, which are improving on an exponential basis, we're going to be in a position where we have to understand critical thinking more intimately than we ever have before so that we know that the value we bring to the equation is the next great question. The AI can go get the answer. You know, and I know AI you is to learn. artificial intelligence. So just for yes. the listeners who uh, don't know that, that's okay. So Annette, I know you love to learn and I love to read but we can't read at the speed or the volume and retain that information anywhere close to what an artificial intelligence can do, right? And so these intelligent technologies are here right now. The large companies are using them at scale right now. And, and typically it takes four to six years for technologies to move their way down market to small and medium-sized businesses because they've become more affordable they improve in performance, so they're a little less resource intensive to learn, and they just scale, they scale down. And so that's here. Like we're in the advent of that period right now. So I think those are the four major themes. And then, you know, I've developed this model around the 20 skills for the next era of innovation. I'm partnered with a guy named Greg Sattel on that. Greg, Greg's my favorite author. He he wrote uh, Mapping Innovation and Cascades: How to Turn an Idea into a Movement. And he's one of the best transformation and innovation authors out there. And we're working together on developing this model and framework around the 20 skills for the next era of innovation. And they, those 20 skills fit into those four quadrants that I just explained. Let's say again, I'm a 17, 18 year old, or I'm a 24 year old looking to uh, reskill or upskill. So I can look at your map, basically your your flowchart or your, your quadrants mm -hmm. and say, well, I'm, maybe I'm stronger in one quadrant than the other, or maybe I'm just got to kind of scattered all over the place. Should I try to go 
through all quadrants or should I really focus on one or a little bit of both? Yeah. So there's, there's typically crossover and you could even look at the quadrants and say, well, this particular skill set, it might be most prevalent here, but it could, you could also make an argument in one or two other quadrants. The real issue is not that you have to be great at everything before the crisis there was a real argument to be made for generalists, right? People that could be adaptable, people who had, the term is transdisciplinarity, but it's the, it's the ability to adapt and move to something completely different because you have this base set of skills. I can tell you that what's in demand tends to change a little bit every year. However, uh, today, very data intensive in terms of what employers are looking for. So data analytics, data science, data visualization. Computer programming and application development still important today. If you're 18, they'll be less important three years from now, four years from now, because intelligent technologies will be doing a lot of the computer programming that we do manually today. Um, Much like the machines do uh, much of the programming that we did 30 years ago, machines can do on on their own today, right? So I would suggest that while it's important to have programming skills so you can understand that mindset, it's less important to have that technical skill going forward in terms of what, how your work will be structured. The soft skills, these uniquely human skills, are really where the emphasis is today. And this, these include emotional intelligence, empathy and compassion, open communication, culturally aware mindset of inclusion. So inclusion, not just ethnic inclusion, but diversity of thought right? It's okay to be challenged. It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to have eight people at the table push back against what you've, what you, what your opinion is. Um, that's the thing I love working with Greg Satella on it because um, I did a live stream the other day, like you, I spend a little bit of time online like that, right? And producing <laughs> right. content. And I jumped on a call with him uh, the next day. And, and he said, how'd you think that went? And I said, Oh, it was really great. Got all this feedback. I thought she was wonderful, my guest. And he said, you know, I didn't think it was that good. (laughs) And he was completely serious. He's from Philadelphia. And the thing I love talking, the reason I love talking with Greg is that's okay for me. I want to learn from Greg. He's an incredible writer, prolific, and he will tell you the truth and it makes us better, right? And so those types of skill sets, having the humility to grow, I'm 51 years old. Having the humility to grow for me sometimes is a big challenge. But when I reflect on what he said and what he, how he makes me better, how that makes me better, I feel really good about it. We all need folks like that in our life, don't we? Mm-hmm, we do. As, as mentors, whether whether they're in, individuals we actually know and can converse with, or just read their books, or right. or watch them watch them on on live streams. That's great. That's right. I'm looking forward to learning some of that. Um, so you work with higher ed. What what kind of things do you do with higher ed in your systems building uh, and collaboration focus? For the last two years, everything I've focused on, uh, regardless of industry, to include higher education is about collaborative systems. So in Wisconsin, I work with 18 institutions of higher education, and it is all about finding economies of scale. Uh, ways to accelerate. For instance, right now, every higher ed, hopefully every business, but every institution of higher education in the country is going through scenario planning. 
right? So what happens in fall if we still have to be virtual? What happens if a flare-up occurs in October with everybody on campus, so forth? Um, what do we do? How do we how do we how do we execute better than we did this time? Okay, when you think through that, it's complex, and there are probably a dozen reasonable scenarios to work through. Why would any school do that on their own? Why wouldn't that be at least regionally done on a collaborative basis so that, you know, you don't know what you don't know. This, this is the issue of, of inclusion of thought, right? If I can sit down with somebody who's going through the same thing for the first time that I'm going through for the first time, and we're all really smart and we're great at what we do, but if we could have eight of those people at the table, now I'm not on my own or my team is not on my own. We have wide perspective from all sorts of different learning environments. You know, maybe the technical colleges think about things differently than the four-year schools with a strong campus life and so forth. But maybe some of that's exactly the mindset we need right now infused into our thought process because maybe they're better at distant learning, for instance, or remote learning between campuses, right? And so I think there's just this wonderful opportunity right now to take all of the tragedy and turn the black tile into the white tile, as my friend Guillaume Hung in London would say, and turn it over and say, what is the opportunity? And the opportunity is that I see is to find ways to work together to make more efficient use of resources, to make fewer mistakes along the way, and to establish working together best practices that can scale. So what other industries do you see that, that set of circumstances applying to and happening in similar situations? So at the peak of the crisis, which I think we were at the first peak or beyond the first peak, I think what we saw was the, uh, many businesses, large, large corporations as well, pivoting to making ventilators and PPE and so forth. And there was this, every state, every region has wonderful stories about how manufacturers work together to execute that, right? In Wisconsin, we had a company called, we have a company called Husco. Um, Husco was one of the leaders, but Briggs and Stratton was in there and they were working with dozens of manufacturers to make uh, reusable respirators, right? There was a, a, just because of the desperate shortfall in supply of PPE. So I think that this is going to continue to be a trend. If I'm implementing a data, advanced data analytics capability in my company, and Annette, you and I are competitors or we're colleagues in the same industry, um, we don't compete based on our ability to do data analytics. If you beat me to that, you might have a three or six month head start. Got it. I'm still going to catch you. And it's it's not that's not going to give you market advantage. So we have to very carefully look at the competitive paradigms that matter less today than they did five years ago in this world of intangible assets and intellectual uh, assets that that company values are based on. And we have to find ways to work together to make use of the resources we have. Think about the fact that we've gone from 3% unemployment to, what, 16 or 17% so far, right, with 36.5 million unemployed. 
We could be headed to 25%, which is what Secretary Mnuchin said a week or so ago. And that's 50 million people that are out of work. It also means that there's a lot fewer people currently employed to execute. And you know as well as I do that two months ago, we were all talking about it's impossible to find resources, right? So if the workforce is that much thinner in terms of the engaged workforce, well, then we need to make really great decisions about how we can do, uh, how we can achieve the objectives we've set forth faster and more efficiently. We've done a lot of collaborative work in Amarillo and in the region. And sometimes it's wonderful. And sometimes it's, it's good as long as that person is the leader of that institution or organization and leadership changes or somebody suddenly gets competitive because they might have access to resources Mm -hmm. if they act alone without bringing in the troops or, you know, in their, in their buddies, in the collaborative. Can you give anybody ideas on how you prevent falling back into those traps? Yes, I can. Uh, they don't always work. <laughs> um, collaboration, collaboration. <laughs> Darn, really I hard. thought it was. Yeah. yeah. Collaboration is really difficult to get right every time. Some of it has to do with optimism, right? I'm overly optimistic about everybody I meet, thinking that, <laughs> you know, we're going to do wonderful things together. And until you prove me wrong, uh, that's typically how I've operated, right? And sometimes we get burned because of that. There's a very specific science to collaboration that I'm a big believer in and, and, you know, the operating systems that I put in place are all about enabling multiple stakeholders, not just party, not just two parties, but multiple stakeholders. Think 18 higher education and institutions of higher education. Think, um, you know, 26 manufacturers finding ways to work together. So here, here are the tips. The first thing is shared values. So none of us ever want to have this conversation. It's, it's not, it doesn't feel very businesslike, so forth, but Boy, if you have fundamentally different beliefs than I do, you know, I'll make myself the bad guy here instead of you. <laughs> uh, if I find some some significant opportunity that even though it violates the the understanding, the basic understanding of what we have in our collaboration, if we don't have matching values, the risk that somebody's going to do something negative for the partnership is much higher, right? And so I think just understanding what the shared values are is really important. And actually, Greg writes about that in Cascades. And it, it's I've learned from him that it's extraordinarily important in order to create momentum, which is what fuels every collaboration or kills every collaboration, is momentum or lack thereof. Shared values. The second piece is matched capabilities. So... Um, There's a model called capability maturity modeling. It came out of Carnegie Mellon. It's just one to five. You just pick it, whatever, you know, data analytics, cybersecurity, it doesn't matter, technical, uh, non-technical, whatever it is, you know, talent acquisition, talent attraction, talent retention, talent development. You're a three and I'm a two. We could probably do some things together. You're a four and I'm a one. I have to buy you lunch. You'll educate me, but we cannot work together for 90 days on a sprint to do, you've already done this work. You, you're somewhere between six months and three years ahead of me. Uh, you'll get bored really fast. I'm out over my ski tips, right? I mean, I, we can't actually work. 
typically in large-scale collaborations, when we bring lots of stakeholders together, nobody sets the baseline and pairs companies or organizations or entities or people by this sort of baseline assessment that says, you know, how good are you at this right now as, a, as an individual, as an organization? One to five, and, and that has to be well-defined. And then what's your target state? Not everybody wants to or can be a five, right? So if you're a four, you might be very happy being a four because we know that four to five is the most expensive one. And typically, you know, the juice isn't worth the squeeze, as they say, right? So is that the right investment for you? Or are you perfectly happy with that particular thing being a four? If I'm a one or a two, I need to get to a three. But that's you a year ago or more. And so what are we going to do together, really? And when you have large-scale collaboration and you don't measure any of that, you get into trouble because there's ones, twos, threes, fours, and fives in the room, and it loses momentum very quickly because it's not compelling work and it's not well-aligned. And if work is not aligned, we can't share objectives and or measurements for how we reach those objectives. And so I use objectives and key results as our continuous improvement um, or continuous performance management uh, operating system. And if you and I are in completely different places, we probably have very different goals. And if I don't understand what you're trying to achieve and you don't understand what I'm trying to achieve and we don't share the values of trying to help each other get there, and I don't know how strong you are in a given area and you don't know how strong I am, there's just there's none of that front end work typically gets done, right? It's mostly transactional. It's mostly, hey, I think we could do something together in that. We could go out and make some money together, do some good in the community together, whatever the high level goal is, but it it lacks specificity. This is especially true in economic regions where you get, you know, education and business and economic development and workforce development, and everybody comes together and they come together with the very best intentions to do wonderful things for whomever the stakeholders are that are going to benefit. And then they don't do that work. And 60 days later, it's the same meeting. And then on day 90, 40% of the people are gone for the third meeting. And then it's 40% turnover. And now you're in this really wicked cycle. Yeah. So those kind of things happen outside of just Texas or the Texas Panhandle, it sounds like. They're kind of universal. They happen all in over the Texas. world. Yeah. <laughs> so you've said you haven't really changed your, you wouldn't change your recommendation for someone going into learning in the early years of, of post-secondary. What about if you're your age and mm-hmm. you just lost your job, yeah. you know, I mean, a lot, that's the In situation for have, a lot of I've people. Lost a significant amount of my revenue, my personal income over the last couple of months, because I'm not getting on airplanes, standing in front of crowds speaking. Right. So, so I've had to reinvent a little bit and I think we're doing a pretty good job of it. 60 days in, we've figured out some, some models, some opportunities, helping companies emerge from crisis and so forth. Of course, everybody's trying to do that today. So we've got to be a little more pragmatic and pick a lane, right? But two things uh, to specifically to your question. Yeah, I get into ruts like we all do. And I sometimes recognize at the end of 90 days that I've been so busy trying to prove how smart I am to everybody that I forgot to learn. 
And that's a really hard thing to do consistently. So I think it's a function of routine and just setting your own personal objectives that include a learning uh, goal every, every 90 days, every month, whatever cadence you're comfortable with. One of the ways I learn the most is by interacting, interacting with you. You taught me a lot in very short conversations, but a couple of conversations that we had in, in Amarillo last time. And, you know, I just told you before we um, jumped onto the show that I've been doing some live streams. And my goal there really wasn't to create relationships necessarily. That would be a lovely outcome with global thought leaders, but rather gain access to them and just ask some questions that have been bothering me since I read their book. And then hopefully sharing that with my extended network. And boy, to get an hour with somebody who really knows their topic uh, is incredibly powerful. So I think there's all kinds of ways, traditional and non-traditional, to learn. And then interacting with higher education, it's really hard to um, walk out of the room dumber uh, than <laughs> I was. Uh, so I feel like I learn every day that I interact with, with the uh, leaders in higher education. That's a wonderful way to look at it, too. It all comes down to continuous and lifelong, and it's much harder at 50 or 60 as you're looking at, you know, the, the back nine, as they say, or maybe the flaps are down on the plane, and you feel like you're coming in for a landing, but what if you live to be 90? You know, the, the issue of retirement isn't just a financial one. It's a psychological one. It's a, the ability to learn and interact is maybe the greatest gift we have, and so, you know, I'm hopeful that I keep this spirit and this energy level going for a long time still, not because I'm, maybe it's because I have more to learn than anybody else does. You know, I mean, I, I'm just so curious about so many things. And I think we're living at this, in this wondrous time with a really significant and tragic setback, but man, there are so many wonderful things compared to a hundred years ago in terms of the, uh, the abundance, the, um, affordability of, many things that the uh, the time that were afforded because of technology as well and access absolutely oh my goodness and if the internet hasn't taught us that this is a you know really a global world a global uh, society um sadly coronavirus has and in a very rapid way we've seen it and and now all of a sudden we're paying attention to countries all around the world and how they're mm -hmm. responding to it versus how maybe we're responding to it in our respective countries or states or communities. And it's it's really kind of fascinating to watch all that. And I, I don't know you. if you know my husband's an infectious disease doctor, so this is oh, really I didn't been know yeah, we in fact a couple of episodes ago he he did a podcast interview with me on the history of pandemics. So there's something hmm. you can go learn about. <laughs> yeah, I it was will. pretty I'll interesting. Listen to that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think one of the things that's been highlighted in the last sixty days is the lack of internet access in rural areas, in poor areas, and so forth. And I I, I think that. One of the outcomes of this, in fact, Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft, was just on LinkedIn yesterday, I think, with a post about this. One of the outcomes of this crisis will be, especially if it elongates, we are going to fix the issue of, of uh, Internet access for you know, every aspect of society and geography in the United States, at least. I never understood the true severity of the difference of you know, a gigabit speed in, in my house versus, 
somebody who's dialogue. still on dialogue. You know? <laughs> yeah. and, just, and yeah. now it's affecting learning, right? Absolutely. And and we're lo- we're losing we're losing learning for the students. We're losing some students as far as just yeah. you know even even checking in. So those are challenges all education you know systems are dealing with right now. I think this has been a wonderful conversation. I hope you do. Uh, what, I sure do. Yeah. What do, what have I not asked you that our listeners need to know about? What's in your head and on your heart and your passions of your work? Yeah. You know, one of the things that I have done in the last 60 days that I'm kind of made a decision 60 days ago. I mean, you know, there was a tough couple of weeks where uh, every speaking engagement that I had booked for six months uh, canceled. Right. And I did make a decision and I certainly didn't do it overnight, but that when I look back at this time, I wanted to be proud about the things that I did. And one of the places that I've gotten engaged is in the issue of health equity. In the southeastern Wisconsin region, uh, the mortality rate amongst African-Americans, for instance, it's 76% of the deaths in one of the health systems. And much for of the that, COVID virus? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Wow. And that issue, so I've spent a lot of time on this and learned that the pre-existing conditions of diabetes and hypertension are two of the exacerbating factors. And so what we've done is I, I uh, created an ecosystem, shockingly. Um, I went out to uh, 22 influential people in southeastern Wisconsin, and uh, we put an effort together that, you know, we ran a little pilot and we said, let's send some care packages. We'll, cre- we'll curate care packages that can be sent from employers to remote employees just with um, emotional and spiritual well-being and engagement in mind, right? You're remote, but we're, you know, you're, you're still part of the team and we care about you. And then we started getting engaged in this effort around delivering uh, culturally aware, healthy option meals to these neighborhoods that were hot zones for COVID. And we're just getting it off the ground right now. It's been, there's so many resources and there's so many people that want to do good things. You have to organize the effort. But I think there are so many opportunities to find pivots in business models. Restaurants, for instance, at least in our part of the country, they are going to have to augment their uh, their in-dining um, revenue streams for the foreseeable future. And takeout or, or curbside just isn't going to do it. So there are other models like virtual kitchens and go uh, sorry, virtual restaurants and ghost kitchens and meal kits, think blue apron, but local chefs, right? And then there's the soup kitchen model, which is we provide meals and they're $10 a meal or $10 a meal kit. And uh, there's just all sorts of creative ways to do that. There's uh, a woman named Caitlin Cullen who owns a restaurant in Milwaukee that's done this at scale. They started at something like 65 meals another a day. Now they're doing 850 meals a day in a network of 20 restaurants. And so it's helping the restaurants sustain. It's helping people who have food scarcity issues right now. And it helps the region be, you know, resilient. I love projects like this. They're rewarding. And then you figure out ways to make money, right? You figure out ways where you can find some margin on the time that you're spending, or you find other opportunities to network and f- build a different business relationship because you collaborated on this piece and so forth. And I think that's a that's an incredible way to live. And you know, frankly, in the first 50 years of my life, I didn't spend a lot of time worrying about um, those segments of the population. 
And um, first of all, it's rewarding. I'm proud of what we've done. Uh, it's proven some things in terms of large-scale collaboration and kind of helped me work through some of that thinking. Um, but we're doing really good things, and there's a great business model around that. That's not only wonderful work, it's a very heartwarming story of, of looking at the current situation saying, okay, I can be you know, three months out and look back and I've watched a whole lot of Netflix or something, or mm-hmm. I can have accomplished something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the coolest part of it, though, is I have challenged myself uh, most days to take a, try to look at all of these issues from every perspective rather than my own, because um, I have my views. And I think I've learned more about the human spirit and people's willingness to do good in the last couple of months than I had, I've ever experienced personally before. I, you know, we've all had heartwarming events in our lives over the decades that we've been around, but I see people coming together to try to help other people, whether that be restaurants that need the help, individuals that need the help, families that need the help. And I love being a part, just a part of that equation and the opportunity to bring some of that together and make it happen. uh, That's pretty cool. So I have to tell you this story about Amarillo College. Uh, Russell, our president, Russell Larry Hart, uh, you know him. He uh, had posted on, on social media as he's been kind of the center point of of the part that's still open at Amarillo College. So anybody that comes to the college, they have to go to the Ware Center, and he's their front and center. And of course, in he one is. of his, of course, he is. <laughs> yeah. But one of his postings was about a, a lady, uh, a single mom with you know young girls who was struggling so hard to keep her technology going so she could finish this eight weeks, which finishes next week. And we have Mm -hmm. our virtual graduation going on uh, between, you know, it'll happen before this podcast airs because it'll air a week from Sunday. But yesterday he posts that he talked about, you know, how their IT department had really worked to keep this individual's technology hanging in there. Another student anonymously gifted that lady, a brand new computer, some gift cards and some, you know, supplies to go with the computer. And it, and poor Russell, the biggest struggle for him was he couldn't hug anybody during all this. So, <laughs> so you're right. I, but there's I'll, lots, there's lots of great stories out there. Yeah. I'll tell you that when I was down in January, there were so many takeaways from the uh, culture of loving kindness that you have built in Amarillo College that, uh, and the outcomes of that. It was actually a really good lesson for me then as well. I mean, it's, I think there's so many, um, I've told so many people about my visit to Amarillo College because awesome. uh, when you ask the president of a technical college, what do you think made the difference in the enrollment going up and the equity gap being closed and so forth? And he tells you that, that's not a, that's not what I expected to hear at the time. Lo- loving then, our students to success, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's incredible. So, yeah. Well, and we're we like everyone else are struggling to figure out how to how to do it right, how to do it the best. 
uh, mm-hmm. so our students can be successful. But um, anything else you'd like to tell our listeners, Todd? No, Annette, I think I've told your listeners enough. I'm sure they've heard enough of me at this point. <laughs> but you're, well, as you continue uh, to think about the future, of course, the future is colored by the past and where we've been. And your future going forward, all our futures going forward, will now be colored by the experiences we've had uh through the COVID uh, isolation, the, the, the health impacts that's had, the institutional impacts, the economic impacts that's had. One of the things I've done is uh, practice Spanish every day. So is my right? Spanish should be better. So uh, that's not quite as noble as, as your your efforts for the past 60 days. I don't know. Learning a foreign language is pretty noble. <laughs> but it's so I can communicate better with, with a large sure. part of our population. Sure. I look forward to watching your work uh, and and see where this goes and where all these changes go. I mean, we don't know what's coming. And you've been thinking about that so much longer than most people and really understanding that the huge impacts of of all these disrupting forces and we have a disrupting force that really wasn't anticipated in, in the same way mm-hmm. that it's impacted us. So I wish you well in your uh, work going forward. I'm sure you'll ad- adapt it to uh, really some pretty phenomenal stuff because I really think we need to be thinking long-term so much better than we've been doing typically. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the kind words. It's really nice of you. Thank you for that. You know, the imagine this happening without internet access. Without the internet. I, I've thought of that, yeah. And when this happens again in the future, inevitably, whether hopefully not for a long, long time, but 20 years from now, we would say, imagine if this happened without artificial intelligence. Imagine if this happened mm. without factories filled with robotics and automated processes and so forth. The reason to adopt new technology is really to create the pathway to the new kinds of work that we can be doing and maximize our own human potential. And I'm excited to see what the next three to five years uh, brings in terms of this acceleration, because I do think, you know, there's going to be a great recovery story that includes a lot of collaboration and a lot of technology. And I really love that phrase, maximizing human potential. Yeah. That's great. That's not a bad goal. Well, thank you, Todd. Thank you, Annette. Thank you for being on my podcast. And thank you for listening to Annette on Education.